This episode of Strange Assembly is brought to you by www.l5rsearch.com. L5rsearch.com is a comprehensive online L5R card database with tools to assist in optimizing your decks, proxying cards, or simply finding out about unusual cards. Once you know what you need, www.l5rshop.com puts cards in your hands quickly and economically. I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, Episode 53, It's a Wonderful Life. Because apparently I have no better idea for an episode title for an interview with Fred Wan than a really, really bad pun. This is Strange Assembly, a podcast about card games, board games, and role-playing games with a focus on the Legend of the Five Rings universe. You can download additional episodes of this podcast via iTunes or on our website, www.strangeassembly.com. While you're there, you can check out our main page or stop in and say hi on the forums. You can also follow those main page updates on Facebook or Twitter. Any comments or criticisms can be directed to Chris at strangeassembly.com. Enjoy the show. I'm Chris Stevenson, and I'm here today for a special Strange Assembly interview with Fred Wan, the continuity editor and can we call you assistant story team lead for l5r or is that giving you too much power i think assistant story team lead is more descriptive than continuity editor for most people so okay yes for for those of you uh, who are not obsessed with the minutiae of l5r and who writes what basically any time you read a legend of the five rings fiction it's going to have the author and then right below it it's going to have edited by fred here so for people who are who are newer to the game, Fred, what, what sort of things do you do on the, the story team and with L5R? Sure. Basically, Sean's in charge, and my job is to kind of make sure that the little details add up to the big picture, that Sean gets reminded of things he wants to do but might have slipped his mind from when he first thought of it, and my job is kind of to ensure that clan positioning and overall arc is preserved. So think of me as the person who makes sure that the work of the individual team members all points in the same direction. So, for example, if we're thinking about how it took forever for Jimin and Noritoshi to resolve, is that because you weren't nagging Sean or because he was ignoring your nagging? I probably wasn't nagging hard enough. <laughs> also, I think there was a mistake, partially, largely on my shoulders, I think, that we wanted to give the impression that this was a story that was going to take a long time. It was something that Noritoshi subjectively would be feeling it's taking too long. And... In universe, we wanted it to take years. And one of the ways we were experimenting or trying to, to make that impression come across was to have 
the actual storyline take more than a few months to resolve because you don't you don't get revenge against the emerald champion in the space of a few weeks it's something that would take months to set up that was the idea so that you know you'd have all of these factors pointing towards a slightly longer resolution but it took too long i think players got a little bit emotionally fatigued with the storyline and then because it took too long when it was finally being resolved we didn't have lead-ins. That being said, I don't think the individual sections were badly written. I just think we could have done a better job with pacing. The other thought I would have on that, and I guess the this is going to be more of a statement, so I suppose the question is, and what do you think about that, Fred? Sure. Is that not only did it take a long time, but as readers... We didn't really know why anyone was doing anything. Like, we knew that Noritoshi was running around saying nasty things about Jimin, but we never knew what his plan was, what his purpose was. So it was hard to, not only was it long, but it was sort of lacking in in plot points along the way. Like like concrete detail, yes. I, I think that's a legitimate criticism. I think if I had a chance to to be making suggestions again for it, we would have had a tighter timeline in terms of less real time elapsed. And I think we would have tried to squeeze in one or two more fictions talking about details. Because I think too many things had to be left to reader imagination. Alright, so we, as we're recording this, Mm-hmm. And that is May 27th, for the reference of the, the listener. AEG just announced the the Shadows Embrace factory set. Yes. And one of the reasons that uh, was I don't think I don't think you were involved in the the decisions about that and how it's being released that I think a lot of people are interested in, but one of the things that it did reference in there was that there are going to be story issues if we don't do something with this, and I didn't know if there was anything that you could comment about that aspect of the, of the decision of, of how and when, or if, to release the Shadows Embrace. Well, I can say that the set... It essentially has as much story content as a normal expansion. I'm not sure offhand, because this is coordinated with other people, what story input you would have from buying or not buying the set, if that's your question. No, no. I guess the announcement was, was sort of written in the form of, if we don't publish this set, then the story never happens. So I didn't know exactly how... I guess, how, how do set releases tie into what the story is and when the story happens? Right. Well, a certain amount of the story revelation or the story information we want to communicate at any given time is going to come with a set, obviously. If that set doesn't come out or is early or is late, then that information gets to players at a different time, obviously. And... For some events, they don't feel real to players 
until the card is in their hand. So, for example, we could discuss the story information that's in The Shadows Embrace in fictions or in other stuff, but then we'd either be repeating what we're going to be doing later anyways, or what, right? Like, Or that information hasn't happened. So I, I sort of see what that press release is trying to say, in that if we peg event X to happen during Shadow's Embrace, I, until Shadow's Embrace is in someone's hands, it doesn't feel like canon to anyone. That's an issue. Okay. Yeah. Another thing that was referenced in that Shadow's Embrace announcement were just things overall, but part of that was the timing of the existing expansions, the originally intended timing of Emperor Editions and the expansions would have been something like November of 2011, Emperor Edition hits, February of 2012, uh, Embers of War hits, May of 2012, or, or whatever, uh, Shadows Embrace hits, and then I guess the, and the fall set was going to be and still is going to be Seeds of Decay. And and that had to get pushed back because Emperor Edition couldn't get released until February because of production issues over in China. And with the references in there about, and the one you've been talking about with tying sets into the storyline, what impact did the delay in the release of Emperor Edition and the delay in the release of Embers of War have on how you guys wanted to do the story? We had to extend some plot lines from that were supposed to be just a few transi- transition fix a bit. So we intended to have a few transition fix for the t- downtime between sets and then get into EE relatively quickly. And we put that back a bit because EE wasn't hitting. So there is that's kind of not a concrete example in that I can't tell you which fiction got put back how long, but it's a fairly concrete idea and a discrete idea. Or is that too vague? Well, I think we always like more detail, but I, I also know that there's constraints in uh, what you can say about the internal decision process and what you can say about the future. Sure. There's also just constraints on what I remember from that many months ago. <laughs> uh, and that's that's actually a really specific reason. Um, I, I recall that we intended on doing X, Y, or Z and we ended up having to delay it because we planned on doing something else. Sorry, not, not that we planned on something doing something else. We um, because of the delay, we ended up setting things back. I don't remember specifically uh, which things, but we ended up having to change our timeline. Yeah. Obviously, one of the things that got pushed back, at least I'm assuming, with mm-hmm. the pushback of the release of Embers of War is you know, specifically the events that transpire within the Embers of War fictions, which, although the third one is up, I at least haven't read yet, So, uh, although you don't have to worry about spoiling things for me. And those fictions are about 
the start of the the flare-up of these conflicts in the colonies and some of that they're about the start of these flare-ups in the colonies and I, I wonder do you think that postponing that more active if not you know not not fighting but at least more active conflict has affected the tenor of Cote season which is all about the clans going around and and grabbing territory in the colonies. Yes and no. I think in general players want conflict and they want and so they're more generally engaged when what they consider to be interesting stuff, quote unquote, is happening. That that's completely legitimate. I think that is at play. I think players are also very acquisitive <laughs> for their clans. And so just getting stuff for my clan before someone else does players are motivated to do that. I think, particularly when it's just getting stuff rather than taking something away from someone else, it's somewhat insulated from the idea of needing conflict to be driven. Like, I think players want good stuff for themselves and their clans, period. And I don't think players really saw this particular Cote season as us against them that much. There were a few people and a few individual prizes where people wanted to get X before their rival clans did. But not that many instances, and it wasn't that strong a drive. My impression was players just wanted to get good stuff for their clans. So I do think the story and engagement took a bit of a hit because there was a perception that not enough is happening but I don't think it necessarily directly hurt Cote attendance in that way. Oh, oh no, I don't, I don't think it hurt Cote attendance. I think most of the Cotes have had great attendance. I actually think that this will be the first Cote season of the last several ones where people look back on it and go, oh, that was a cool Cote season. Because um, on a very simplistic level, people really like picking prizes off of lists yeah. And then getting a card for it. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the two Cote seasons during the Race for the Throne were that, and people loved it. Yep. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I imagine people will will like this as well. Although I do have to wonder, are you guys going to let the clans do any kind of negotiating to make sense out of the random hodgepodge of a map that's going to end up? Or is this five years from now we're going to be looking at a supplement with this map of the Ivory Kingdoms where there are just clan markers all over the place and you wonder how on earth did the did anybody arrange the territories like this? <laughs> well what I would expect to happen is no prize is eternal eventually the boundaries could change I, I always want to leave that possibility open or eventually the clans might just negotiate amongst themselves and do quid pro quo. Or who knows. But having individual spots that belong to one clan, even though the region itself belongs to another, I don't think that necessarily is illogical. Because you can have, you can have say, a corporate building in the middle of a downtown core owned by a city. 
You just can, right? So I don't think conceptually it's necessarily precluded. I certainly agree it'll need to be looked at over the next few years. Now, so far at least, the, the Crane have managed to pick up two wins, but so far the Spider haven't won any Kote, and yeah. so would not be, uh, let's call it semi-permanently. I mean, again, nothing is permanent, but at least for now, yes. not be grabbing any territory. Are there any particular plans for what that represents in the story, or is it just more of a, well, that's just where explorers happen to go, and I guess the spider didn't do a very good job of that? Well, there are some plans. I don't want to get too specific, but, for example, one thing we are considering is, is it just that the spider explorers didn't happen to find... They didn't happen to strike it rich. That's one thing we could look at. Another we could consider is that the other clans were much better at laying claim politically and within the social structure of the Empire to various sites in the Spider War. Um, yet another thing we can do is to say, and I'm not likely to do it this way, but it's something I just raised as a possibility, that the Spider decided they had other things they wanted to focus on. Um, I, I'm reluctant to do that because that kind of undercuts what the other clans accomplish. But all of those are thing, you know, are things we are considering as possibilities. And in the end, we may do one or more, or three or four, depending on how everything pans out and what we think works. But it's always tough when there are things awarded as prizes and one clan doesn't get any. Because players want to know why this clan didn't get any. Absolutely. And I don't know what the answer will be. Or I'm not able to tell, either or. Um, uh, yeah. But but I think it's a legitimate question and a legitimate concern, and I put at least some effort into trying to come up with a solution. Sometimes I can't, but but it's certainly something I at least think about. You want my pitch on what makes a lot of sense? Sure. And this may not make any sense, I guess, knowing what, you, what depending on what you guys have planned in the future. The Spider and the Kingdoms are the ones that were not allowed in the Empire. And now these colonies are becoming part of the Empire, so the spider have to get out again. <laughs> that That is actually something that makes sense within the setting. It's something that, you know, I would consider. One of the things that comes to mind is, well, how does that impact the way the players feel about the relationship between Spider and Empress? And I, I kind of acknowledge up front that there is no Fred Wynn scenario, no matter what. Someone is going to be angry, and usually legitimately, on some level, with a particular direction we take. It's just a matter of trying to answer those questions in a principled way. Yeah, I imagine that with the spider, there are a reasonable number of situations where you have a choice between annoying these spider players who care intensely about their clan and annoying people like me who conceptually have had issues with how the spider have been yes. deployed in the story. Absolutely. And I'm I, I would be doing a disservice to players if I didn't say in most cases when someone has a concern okay, maybe not most, but in many <laughs> in many cases, when someone has a concern, there is a legitimate basis for that concern. And even if in the end I don't agree or cannot accommodate that concern, it's not that I don't think it's there. Right? I, I've heard 
the players who have concerns about the way the spider work in the Empire. And, you know, I'm not, they're not meritless. At the same time, I've heard players who are very happy with the implementation, and I don't think they're crazy or fanboys necessarily for not hating the spider. L5R is about people who are very passionate about the game and the setting and the universe. And there are distinct upsides and headache-inducing downsides to both. I guess while we're on the subject of things that I've commented on about the spider, is there anything you can say about how the spider got the ancestral sort of Hante? I believe... Hante? Oh. Sorry, I was, I was thinking ahead to a different sword. Um, not yet, I don't think. I think we want to uh, come out and say so later. Although we have actually thought through how, how it's going to work. And I think if and or when we actually say it, it'll make sense. But I'll remind Sean that we need to put that into something official that's seen on screen because we discussed this internally and came up with what I thought was an acceptable answer. But if we don't tell anyone, then what's the point, eh? Um, yeah. Yes, I, I think, again, things that are, uh, I'm going to say that are not necessarily questions, but I imagine my hope would be that <laughs> any time you have an internal discussion about exactly. what is it that happened or why did this happen, that should show up Explicitly, not the discussion, but yes. that there's actually something shown. I, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I think back to the, and this was ages ago now, but the, before everybody knew they were the spider, and before the unicorn became the, the suckers for the spider by winning, by, by, by winning, lowest knowledge in that leg, the mantis and the spider were working together a little, and then that broke up, mm-hmm. and was never actually stated in any fictions. There were just some oblique references to it in flavor text. And I remember months later it coming up on the forums and Sean saying something like, oh, well, no, they fought and <laughs> broke their, that alliance got broken up months and months ago. Yes. And no one knew that yes. that had happened. It's, it's an issue where I think you're right. It needs to be portrayed clearly and kind of unequivocally. It is something where for a while we were experimenting with trying to be a little bit more old school as it were or uh first ed or clan war style storytelling where there was a where back then a lot less was said explicitly and a lot more was left to inference i don't think that's what players want these days right a lot of people who were playing back then talk about how how fun it was and how interesting and how it left more to the imagination was more immersive and so on but I actually think, and I'm not saying that we just haven't dropped the ball now and again too, but I actually think the story is, and the player base has evolved in such a way that, yeah, generally we need to say it. Well, and if I, if I'm recalling correctly, and I, I may not be because I started playing L5R in Emerald Edition, sure. but I was not Mr. Big Hardcore on it then. Sure. There was a lot less information put out there, but there also was just a lot less fiction put out there. You were not Absolutely. dealing with, I think, just by putting out a story every week, which you should 
continue doing, by the way. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying don't do this. But, but yeah, when, when you're putting out the story every week and people are checking in every week, you kind of expect updates yes, more, I guess. Absolutely. And I, I'm referring more to just general style because even when Wick or Soyuz V or anyone else put out stories back then, even then, a lot more was left to to guesswork and inference, even within those stories. So, and I think, you know, a lot of people have said, well, I like that, and I can understand why, but players also like having a certain amount of detail so that they can have discussions where you're not actually debating whether certain basic events happened or not. Factual statement, is the Mantis Scorpion Alliance still going, yes or no? Right? You need to answer that before you can really get into, was that breakup justified? Who's right or wrong? So, I think you're right that we need to say as much as we can, within reason, clearly and unequivocally, and in a timely fashion. We're not perfect at that. What, from a storytelling perspective, or insert your own word instead of storytelling, is the function of what I guess feels like a reasonably high number of delayed reveals that happen sometime. For example, when we were just talking about the sort of the Hante, that card came out and it could have just been done right when that card came out. The spider now have it and this is what happened as opposed to now, whereas I don't know if it's the spider don't have it yet or the spider have it, but we haven't explained it yet. And then there's also with the War of the Twins, there was a lot of sort of, oh, you know that there was this duel, and then you know that there was a war, but you have no idea, but you don't know who right. won the war. Oh, now you know who won the war, but you still don't know why there was a war. Or just generally what's been going on. Right. I mean, we have these very vague notions of what's gone in the Ivory Kingdom for the last 25 years, but are, are lacking a lot of detail right. in that. What What is the function of that sort of delayed reveal? Part of it is that we have finite story team resources in terms of people time. And some things are just held off because to discuss them would break the narrative flow of the fiction you're in at the time. Because the characters in that story all know. So they wouldn't discuss something that happened 10, 15 years in the past because it's obvious to them. But at the same time, I completely recognize players want to know. Narratively, I don't think there's a distinct objective we're seeking to achieve by by delaying stuff like that, I think it's more along the lines of well, what can we talk about right now without, with, without breaking the flow of the fiction we're in right now and sometimes there's just not enough narrative space or author time and energy to get to something in a given fiction without making a fiction too long. So it's not so much that we're trying to accomplish something by, by withholding as... Although sometimes there are... We don't want certain identities out there, sure. But I think more often it's because we want the fiction you're on right now to be interesting. And talking too much about what happened has happened in the past can break that flow. I think everyone is in agreement that there was a lot of drag in the overall plot in Celestial Edition. Part of that, because of CCG timing issues with how the arc cycle was going to be changed, starting with Emperor Edition. And then we've started off 
Emperor Edition with a period of time that I at least feel has kind of been, well, there's a while before much of anything started happening, and, and maybe, I don't know if I'm in the minority in, in thinking that. And we know that part of that was due to the, or at least I, I think it was, was due to the delay in Emperor Edition and in Embers of War. But at the same time, it, it feels like, well, part of those drags in active plot happening were because of CCG releases. That's not the entire reason. Would you agree or disagree with that belief of mine? And if I'm correct, is there anything that the story team is going to be doing going forward to try to prevent that from happening more? Well, one thing I'm experimenting with, and we'll know the results in a few months, is trying to change the way we're scheduling fictions a little bit. Sean and I are just working on that right now in terms of scheduling how they're prepared. And hopefully with a change in the way they are prepared, that can change when they go up and that can change the pacing. But we're just working on that right now, so I don't know what the results will be. I, I know what I can hope for them to be, but I don't want to make any promises or anything like that. I do agree that some of the problems came from rescheduling. And sometimes we have certain ideas or certain stories we want to tell, and they don't end up coming out different. They don't end up coming out quite the way we thought they would. And while I definitely am sorry for, you know, the times it doesn't work out, I'm not really averse to. You know, if someone wants to tell a certain story a certain way, I want to accommodate that. And sometimes we just can't tell how it will look in terms of the implementation or the pacing or or whatnot until it's done. Yeah, I guess part of what it feels like to me is that when I when when I'm reading them is that it's not a problem if a story takes a long time. Right. It's that if it feels like a long time is passing with nothing really happening, either because Yes. The the fictions don't come around to the story, or the story happens, but it gets mentioned in a fiction, but it doesn't seem to advance what's going on with that. Like, I know that I yeah. I really liked, at least, obviously, I mean, everybody knows I didn't like how it ended, but I generally liked the Genpuku game because, to me, it felt like when they showed up in the story, something was always happening. Yes. So they had this multi-year story, but the plot was always advancing. Yes. I'm familiar with what you're saying, and it's a matter of coming up with solutions, given also that there are times where we just... I don't necessarily want to be in a position where I'm forcing someone to say, you have to write about this, this way, this week. Because that actually, you know, hurts how well stories can be told, right? <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it hurts the creative process. What? You don't, you don't want to take your volunteer writers and tie them to the mast and just whip them until they come out right. with what you want rather than something they find interesting? Right. And, <laughs> and exactly. And who's to say my ideas are necessarily good ones anyways, right? So there is... Oh, actually, Fred, that's my job. Well, no? well right? as long as you continue <laughs> saying they are good ones, then we'll have no problem. But it's, part of it is that writing is a creative endeavor. And writing is 
you know, requires you to tell a story in a vivid way, in an interesting way, and so on. Sometimes that doesn't match up exactly with particular story objectives. And that's not a blameworthy thing or anything like that. That's just how it is. So there are times where someone will have a great story, great vivid characters, interesting events that don't have anything to do with the narrative. They just don't. Like, as in the, the meta-narrative or the bigger narrative. Yes. And those I, often result in good stories, too. Yeah. And I'm not at all prepared to shackle the team. I am conscious that there's a need to move the story forward, though. Absolutely. It's just, you know, sometimes the best story ideas that are coming out of the team just happen to be things that are a slice of life or whatnot. And I think there needs to be space for that, but I am aware that people want the narrative to move forwards as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I, it's been joked by members of the story team that really we just are writing glorified marketing copy, but I guess I I imagine that if if members of the story team actually came to sincerely feel that way, that would negatively affect the quality of the stories. I think so. I mean, of course, like, you know, statement of reality, part of the draw of the game is the story and the involvement in the story. We all know that. Yes. So there, in that sense, yeah, it is. it has a marketing function. But yeah, it's more... I think for every member of the team, it's more than that. Yes. Although, of course, I don't really want to speak for them, but I think that's a safe thing to say. Well, I, I'm trying to think... Yeah, I've I've not talked to with the Yoon's, mm-hmm. Ryan Yoon and and Yoon Ha. Right. But other than that, I've I think I've talked to everyone else on the story team at some point, and I've certainly always got the impression that the people on the story team, yeah, yeah were interested in the setting and cared about it and found it interesting beyond. Mm-hmm. I, I'll say beyond the job. It's a matter of what individual team members want to do and want to tell. Right? And I try to give outlines and plots and say, you know, this is what we're working towards. Here's, here's the kind of event we need covered in the next little while. Once that's done, uh, a kind. I prefer leaving it to the team to to decide how they want to implement, but I try not to micromanage. So, an example would be from, say, Second Yasuki War. It's a little more dated, but I think it's one I can talk about a little more concretely. Nancy and I had a fairly good idea of how many fictions we we had in mind and what each one would cover. Then I just left it to Nancy to do her magic. And I think most people felt the Yasuki War, the second Yasuki War anyways, was well done. I mean, there were, there were people who took ex- exception to certain individual choices, I think, and that's uh, valid. Do you mean the or do I mean third, third Yasuki War? Sorry, I, mean, I may mean third. My, my, my memory is going. Okay, I'll say, well, because second was the one with Hachi. Because the first Yasuki War was... It is was... third, yes. It is okay. third. I am just, okay. I'm just confused. I blame lack of sleep. Sorry, no, no, that's okay. I'm thinking about it. I'm like, I don't think 
Nancy was on the story team in the second <laughs> Superman. That doesn't sound right. That's that's not the that word doesn't mean what I think you think it means. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, yeah, and I, yeah, it was interesting. I I'm trying to remember where I, I saw it. I, for example, I really liked the flowers, the snow, which, unless yeah. I'm mistaken, was her. But yes, I remember yes. seeing that commented on recently as something that some people didn't like, and I didn't even remember people not really like like there being a any kind of real group of people who didn't like that. Oh, there were. There absolutely were. Yeah. Uh, there was a significant number of people who didn't like how the the manner in which the crowd were beaten in that. Uh, was that was that the one where the the Haruma who had rediscovered the ancient techniques got like arrowed? Yes, but it wasn't just that. It was there, there was more to it than that. That was one incident within the fiction that people didn't like. Okay. Well, some people didn't like. I'd say a lot of people did like it. But people commented that, okay, so in, the, in one of the fictions we're highlighting someone who has rediscovered the Hiruma school, the person gets shot. And I think that, to some extent, is a valid concern about the content. But I think the manner in which it was written kind of highlights the tragedy of that particular war, because it's no secret within that fiction that the two seem to have feelings for each other, or, or at the very least have respect for each other as warriors. And one of them essentially shoots the other. It's not a particularly glorious or honorable way of resolving your conflict. It's not dishonorable either. It's just not high, you know, one-on-one dueling sort of thing. Because the character who is doing the shooting realizes he probably will lose if it's a duel. Yes. The Shono technique, I believe we call that. Yes. (laughs) That's one of the favorite card ideas I came up with. But beyond that, there were people who felt it was stupid of the crab to believe a crane would stand by his word. And I don't go quite that far. I, I don't think that concern is valid. Because in general, if a samurai says something, you take it at its face value. And if a crane says something, you take it at its face value subject to knowing that they do, like, innuendo and a little bit of speak. Yeah, well, that, if I'm recalling, that was the one where the crane said, oh, we'll hand it over, and we won't hurt the sake works, but... Yes, we won't damage the sake works. Yeah, they didn't say anything about the workers, and they just kill all the workers, including everybody who actually has the recipe. That's right. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly an example of sincerity, straight up, yes. in the setting. Straight up. There is no dishonorable conduct there. And one of the things we wanted to kind of accomplish with that particular method is to show how, and it's not as simple as honorable doesn't mean you're a nice guy. It's to highlight how the crane completely uphold the values of the setting. And yet it's still possible for certain clans to say they're not trustworthy. At the same time, the crane has not at all lied or deceived. Well, he's deceived... He just doesn't. He doesn't lie. In a he, way, has, yeah. he hasn't violated the tenet of sincerity. But that's right. Clearly, if you were to take that and put that in the context of some consumer representation, yes. uh, that would oh, yes. you know we'd say that was a. a so yeah, I, they've yes. they've deceived in a way that does not violate the tenets of Bushido. <laughs> yes, but and and this is also important to dis to distance the crane conceptually from Scorpion because the Scorpion would have just lied. 
right? The Scorpion would yeah. have said, oh yeah, you'll get it completely intact, and they'd have, you know, undermined the foundation or imported a bunch of termites. And <laughs> booby-trapped the place. Right. And, and for development of the universe, I thought that was very important, but it's based on a, it's based on a subtlety. It's, that, that fiction has a lot of layers of characters saying exactly what they mean, and other characters misinterpreting what they mean within the setting, with no dishonorable conduct happening, but still objectionable, depending on your perspective, conduct. Yes, yes. There's, there's probably an awful lot of conduct that falls within the rubric of, well, not probably, there is an awful lot of conduct that is honorable under Bushido that we, I'm going to hope, as, yes. as readers would find to be not great, if not reprehensible. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in terms of the elegance of the storytelling and execution, Nancy did a very, very good job there. Because those nuances are hard to, to, to bring out without beating someone's head in. And she did that. But there were some people who were upset about the, conta, the content, and I can understand that too. It is not possible to tell an interesting story about clans that are having conflicts with each other over material issues without making someone upset, and, yeah. and not in a way that's trivial or marginal or unjustifiable. It's that it's going to happen because someone is going to lose. Oh yeah, or else it's going to be a bunch of very boring conflicts. And yeah, and I, I even remember. What, I think maybe it was when Forgotten Legacy came out, and there was uh, Duel of Haiku and Accidental Confession, yeah. which is a crane and a dragon, and, and clearly the, the dragon is the one who accidentally confesses to something. I don't remember if it's implied what it is, but I remember that yeah, there was somebody on the dragon boards who who was then complaining that this dragon character looked bad in this, and it's like, no, okay. No, 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 no. We, <laughs> you, yeah, there have to be losers in the setting. <laughs> yes. Uh. And they just do. The setting doesn't work if everyone uh, wins all the time, or everyone is right all the time. And one of the things that I think is very important is for every clan to have something that you can latch onto and say, this is cool, this is why this clan is the best ever. As well as something where players who don't like that clan, or don't like what it stands for, or don't like what the clan does, or how it executes its duties, or whatnot, can legitimately say, but hang on, there is this aspect that I find at least distasteful, maybe more. Yeah, yeah, I like that with the and with right with the fourth edition RPG. There was a little bit of that. I'm, I think with the splat pages, like they used to do in the old yes. White Wolf books, with his why our group is the best and what we think yes. about everybody else. Mostly that they suck. <laughs> and and that was from first ed of L five R RPG too, where you had a little sidebar in each of the original Way of the Clans books, mm -hmm. where the other clans talked about your clan. <laughs> And it's very interesting when you look through it because most of the clans had very strong opinions about certain other clans, right? And and you could tell, see, you could see that certain clans had the general respect of the other clans, whereas some others had none. Yeah, well, that was the whole running sidebar story, I think, in Way of the Scorpion. Mm-hmm. 
about. I'm trying to even remember what it was about, but just the scorpion. They, the scorpion getting a one over on every other clan, sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, Well, I just remember because I always like that, and it's always about sort of what's wrong with the mm-hmm. other clan. But yes. I always remember. I always like the one that it did with the dragon, which is yes. that the the scorpion goes up to the dragon, and the dragon's like, "Oh, I've seen all your tricks." You can't fool me or whatever, and he's sort of like, I don't have to. You you saw everything I did, and you you sat on your butt and did nothing. So yes. who cares? It Go was. It, it's it's very much how a lot of clans do see the dragon, in that the the scorpion has successfully put one over on every single other clan, and he walks up to the dragon, and the dragon just goes through a list of all the tricks the scorpions played, and he said, I knew what you were doing every single time before you. Before you finished, and the dra- and the scorpion just looks at him triumphantly and goes, "Yeah, but you didn't do anything about it." <laughs> yes. Now it's a stereotype, and it's not supposed to be representative of the entirety of the dragon. Well, it's a good stereotype. I mean, yeah, there are, there are but it is how a lot of cl- how the scorpion, particularly from that era, saw the dragon. Yeah, that's clan war when yeah Tagashi sat there for nine hundred years and did nothing. So, if only you could have in every single arc, you could draw on a thousand years of stereotype without having to deal with the five years of active fiction that you had just written. It's very difficult, (laughs) because on the one hand, clan archetypes are part of what make the clans vivid, but players justifiably say they don't want their clans to just be a bunch of stereotypes. And so, that's something we grapple with. Well, yeah, and it's the and and everybody wants something to change, but yes. not the thing that they like. Yes. Uh, or yeah. I I remember there was one time many months ago, maybe years, where there was a debate on one of the clan forums, maybe the AG forum, about which clan loved their peasants the most, and people were really fighting and making strong arguments for why their clan had their samurai treat peasants with genuine respect and love and equality. And I'm just like, are you sure you want to be arguing that position? Well, that's one of those things that that goes back to what we talked about a second ago, the difference between the in-setting view and the in-character view. Again, if not everyone, then almost everyone, I hope, of the, the people who actually read the stories and play the games, would not think that a caste-based system where some people are perpetually doomed to semi-personhood and, yes. you know, are basically just property... Is a good thing. You know, people would think that that's a bad thing. And yeah. so when people look at their clans, often they, they don't want to be the ones doing that. And, and I imagine that came to your mind because I, I'm sure the Mantis were arguing that they were the best. But the Unicorn, that used to be a sort of thing with the unicorn when the unicorn were less moto-focused. Yes. It, it's funny because the... I don't think the moto, culturally, would be any less egalitarian than the Shinjo. I just think it's something where we've had other priorities for unicorn story time. Yes. So it hasn't been mentioned, rather than it actually going away under the moto. But since it's not talked about as much under the moto, it's seen as having gone away under the moto. 
yeah, it's it's not talked about as much. And if it if it did come up, I would think it wouldn't be as much of a focus because I, at least my impression was that that a non-trivial part of that was an effect of the focus on Shinjo and Shinjo's compassion. And even though Shinjo is the one who put the Moto in charge, you're kind of moving away from that. You also it had been a long time since Shinjo magistrates had been a thing in right the CCG. Well, I'll go on a bit of a not a rant, but a bit of a narrative here. And okay. I always saw the the unicorn tendency towards egalitarianism to have come out of the fact that they were nomadic in relatively hostile territory in a setting where everyone had to pull their weight or you'd all die from their nomadic years. And I don't see that mentality as being something that's distinct to the Shinjo, because Samoto, when they were in the Burning Sands, were just as besieged. And they'd been at it longer, and they weren't even no- nobility by blood. At least, you know, you'd have chieftains and so on, but they weren't nobility by blood the way the Shinjo were. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't necessarily think that the Moto wouldn't culturally have a similar, you know, if the farmer doesn't farm, we all starve. I don't see that as being necessarily a Shinjo-specific thing, but the element of compassion is a lady Shinjo thing. I'm sorry, that's, that's so, what I meant when I was yeah. talking about Shinjo and compassion. Yeah, yeah. I, meant, yeah, I meant the kami, sorry, not and, the and family. And certainly the family reflects the kami. So I, I think, narratively, there is room there to say, perhaps the Shinjo have it a little more than the Moto because they also have that divine connection. But I don't think it is something that you know would naturally and instantly be absent from the Moto. Having said that, it's not the unicorn emphasis narratively right now because you've got the Mantis who, who to some extent don't really see cast that much at all. They see Koku to some extent. I will comment though that for a clan and a player base that likes to emphasize very strongly the whole idea of earning your place, uh, if you think back to the to the war of succession between Kitao and Kumiko, a lot of Mantis players were behind Kumiko because she was Yoritomo's chosen heir. Which, in a funny way, is kind of ironic. Because you've got a clan that's about earning your way and finding your way backing someone on the basis of blood. <laughs> uh, well, Not yeah. to say what's wrong either. I'm just pointing out that it's funny. Yes, yeah. I imagine that's more about affection for things oh, yeah. than coherence in the story. I mean, there's... I, I imagine that active storyline produces a lot more... Not imagine. Active storyline produces a lot more random jumps around for clan championships because the clan champions die off so much more often than they would and you can't wait for their yes. they don't go old and retire and you can't just put their at least I don't think there have there been any story I don't remember there being any stories where somebody's ten year old became the clan champion and there was a region. I guess we had that with Chen in Celestial, kind of, where there was a guy right. who was identified as clan champion who was a regent, but that 
usually does. And I guess Oushi was kind of doing that as well, but she was never carded like that. No. So it's it's not something. I'm sorry, easy not to do. Uh, not Oushi, Kasada's wife. Uh, uh, ugh. Oh, I can't you get mean, anyone's name right. You mean Kuroda? No, I'm Kuan's wife. Oh, and um, and, the, and the little bear's father, right? She became. Right. And I'm I'm blanking on that character's name, but she I mean she was the Reha? Reha, there you Yeah. So I guess that actually has come up twice, but that's because you guys <laughs> that's because you guys were setting up the time jump. Yes. <laughs> yes. <It's... laughs> Which is why that has happened actually happened twice recently. <laughs> it's Sean has a statement on one of the on the AG form that someone quoted, I think. That players are okay with champions with flaws, but they're not really okay with. And and, and he made the statement in context of uh, how flawed a champion could be without players revolting. But I think it's broader than that. I think players are okay with having champions with difficulties, but they're not really okay with having an absent champion or no champion given, during a given arc or a given time period, because champions are characters people can rally behind. Yeah. Lord knows I come from a clan that can fixate on its champions. <laughs> yeah, and, and narratively, I can totally see why. But story-wise, I would love to be able to have one arc where a clan had a weak or inept or unfit champion outright. And not, you know, just outright from the get-go. It's obvious this guy got into posi- his uh, position of power through nepotism. He's got no business being champion. The clan will be better off when he dies, sort of thing. But there would be huge problems. Mechanically, each individual problem on its own would be, sol- would be solvable, but there'd be problems mechanically, there'd be problems narratively, there'd be problems with just players being really unhappy. People would certainly not like it if they got a clan champion card that was a bad card, because the clan champion was a bad clan champion, but there aren't a lot of incompetent people who get any real story time at any level of power. I mean, there are not yeah. a lot of fictions about that Tagashi monk who's kind of clumsy, or that Scorpion who's a terrible liar, or... Yeah. <laughs> and that's just writ large if it's a clan champion. Yeah, and part of that is because players want to read about characters they want to read about. And part of that is because of the relatively heroic nature of the setting, right? Like, Rokugan's not supposed to be a dystopia, so you're not supposed to have a bunch of people who are completely and obviously inept for their positions in positions of power. Mm-hmm. But it it can be a problem, because there are times where people want to read about, you know, this clan champion is inept. How does the clan deal? Yeah, it seems like that sort of story, you, you might almost have to put the ineptness... Somewhere in the Imperials, which, uh, of course, incidentally happens to some extent, some would argue, every time there's active storyline. Because an an active, strong emperor who handily deals with every situation that is presented produces a really really boring story, probably. Well, you you basically have events that are, are ones that players have said they don't want to have a lot of focus on. Like, you can't... It's difficult to maintain interest in a time of peace and prosperity. 
it's not impossible, but it, it's there are players who who want their clan to be going to war and aren't particularly interested in in things like court setting. And I'm not saying we should, you know, purely cater to one or the other, but I have to be aware of it. The most iconic, for for whatever else is running around, the samurai is the most central iconic thing about something like L5R. And that is a, you know, guy with a sword who's defined by combat. And uh, obviously the, you know, the real culture, obviously, and even the fake culture have an awful lot more going on, but that's not what we write about. Just like if if you were writing in an Old West, there always have to be shootouts. Uh, Even though in the real Old West, you'd know people did not kill each other at high noon every other day. They probably would (laughs) in in a fictionalized Western setting that you had to keep going for, for, for 20 years. Yes, absolutely. And again, it's not a matter of pandering, but it's a heroic setting with certain kind of norms of that kind of setting. And so we have to work with that. Well, let's see if I can come up with any sort of specific question that isn't just a straight up, tell me what happens in the future. If I'm recalling the timing, the the Sparrow were pretty thoroughly taken over by the Spider before the Spider actually became a great clan. I believe that's correct, yes. Do we, I guess as one of the many, what happened during the time jump, whatever happened with that? Because yeah, I know people were speculating that, oh, the Spider will end up just being the Sparrow clan, and that's how they'll be officially recognized, and that didn't happen. But do we have any information on what happened with the Sparrow? Well, you, did you have a chance to read um, Robert Spooky's uh, fiction yes. some time ago? Yes. It's not intended to be the last word, but it was intended to be kind of the last word for a while. So, we do have... We're kind of bouncing options on how we want to ultimately resolve it, but it's... That fiction alone is not going to be the last word. Okay. To me, at least, that is, and that was a really good fiction. Yes. But that was also a fiction that is not a closure yes, fiction. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, I think we're like-minded on that. Okay. Although I would say, myself as a reader, if that was the very last story for the Sparrow, I'd be okay with that. Well, it's not going to be. But if it was, I would. I guess it sort of depends on. It could be the last Sparrow story, right. but. I would still want to know what ultimately happened. I mean, it could be that the end of that story is when the events of Goddesses happen and the Spider become a great clan, there's nothing left of the Sparrow. The Sparrow just don't exist anymore. And so it could be the last Sparrow story in that sense. But I guess, to me, it would not make sense to have this all the stuff happens and the Spider still, I mean, just in perpetuity control the Sparrow clan and nobody realizes that. I mean, which is, which is kind of where you end up if you literally never mention the Sparrow again in fiction. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, at least to me. Right. Well, I don't, I don't know about other people. I, I can just but. say that mostly because we haven't decided once and for all how we want to fully resolve and what mechanism we want to use to fully resolve it. But it was not intended to be the last, last yeah. Sparrow story. 
there's been a, a, some references to whatever is going on that the crab and the scorpion know about. I didn't miss something right. We just have no idea what the big secret is that those two clans have that they're trying to hide from the Empire. From which card of fiction is this from? There's a reference on the Scorpion Wall is finished. There's, I think, the uh, maybe right. the Emperor Edition starter deck right, right. fiction with Kasada, where like one of the Scorpion... It, it's actually a weird thing where the Scorpion is kind of portrayed as being a blabbermouth because he mentioned mentions the name of a town. It may be that there's a right. town in between two layers of walls. Right. I, I wasn't sure if, like, oh, the fact that there's a town there at all is the secret, or... I, I know the fact that the Scorpion, every once in a while, deliberately let Oni out to kill people, that's probably a secret. But it also seemed like the Crab were not aware of that either. So... <laughs> I, I think there is enough material overall for people to have an informed guess, or, it, like, to narrow it down to a few informed guesses. And to actually guess at what the actual answer is, I don't think we've stated flat out what it is. Okay, so I just don't have a clue then. All right. <laughs> but it's it's not supposed to be like super duper. No, like it's not supposed to be something where there is a complete vacuum inf information. But I think we intentionally left out enough that you cannot say with certainty what they're referring to. Other than the individual air and imperial legion prizes the mm -hmm. the big results for the second mega game were this whole does your clan have total failure failure costly victory solid victory etc yep. etc et that, that was supposed to be the the big effect from that and we've seen some references to that especially about the line because they ended up they ended up badly in glory because they gave it up for the empire and ended up badly in honor because they didn't try right but We've seen some references with them, and then I think, and maybe a an oblique reference somewhere else in, you know, like in the Mantis fiction to them having even smaller numbers. But is anything planned in the story to convey more of an impact about that? Or is that something that's supposed to have, for the most part, come and gone during the time jump? Hmm... I'm thinking. I I would not be surprised if it comes up now and again in fiction, but most of the effects would have been born during the time jump, so I'm not sure how topical it is. Again, you know, the fact that the last 10 years have really sucked is something the characters know about for the last 20 years, but you know what I'm saying? Like For them, it might subjectively be a shorter span. But I don't know how much they would be referencing it Explicitly. One of the areas that I would hope would have more space to exploit would be the RPG. That's always kind of my hope for anything that can't be done in a timely and complete fashion on on screen. I like, yes. I, I hope yeah, yeah, I'm hoping for some some good information in the Second City box set that, that's coming out around Gen Con. <laughs> so there's that. And... There's always a trend. There's always going to be a tension between talking about legitimate negative consequences and having players roll their eyes at me and go, "Why are you hammering this again?" I do think it's worth mentioning. I do think it's worth using to set the stage for the various conflicts and so on. I'm not sure if it would be so close as to be like center stage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was just one of those. Uh, and I'll tell you, and I'll be frank, my 
my expectation going at this point has basically been that those mega game results are largely just not going to matter. And that's, at least from where I sit, kind of a problem in that, okay, it wasn't the race for the throne, it was not as long, it was not as involved, I don't, other than right. the spider stuff, I think people just did not care nearly as much. Right, uh, because you never wanted set up. to not matter. It, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, it was still a almost year-long contest that, that people had, and it sort of, yeah, I mean, it seems like the place to deal with it would have been somewhere in those setup fictions that were done between uh, last summer and and now, and... That opportunity may have been lost? When you say it in terms of, well, that's not something that people would talk about, so how do you, how do you, you know, have that come up in a fiction and then have it because it's the past, but then oh well, well, so now we can't just have people. I understand. Mention no. it, but uh, yeah, the, the RPG would be nice, but uh. it's it's one of those things where I wouldn't have minded more references to those t- difficulties during the interim fictions. I'd like to not drop it. it yeah, it's but where do you better. fit it in with the yeah all the other stuff that has to be written about? Yeah, and. It's it's a legitimate point you bring forward. It's one thing that I and the rest of the team will be turning our minds to. But again, I'm very reluctant to say we will come up with this brilliant solution when sometimes we don't. Sean uh, made a point on on the Mantis forums, I believe, of saying that there is not uh, an incipient civil war between the eldest twin who, I guess, vacated the championship right. and, and the other one. Yes. And and the Mantis players seem to not believe him. So I, I guess my, my first question is, <laughs> why not just go ahead and, and have them have, I guess, another Civil War? And then my second question is, what's up with all the people not accepting clan championships? Because the Lion one did that too. <laughs> yes. I, I think... I know for certain that we plan on exploring why the Lion didn't. And I think the reason why the Mantis didn't is actually going to be explored, but not in as great detail, because I think it's going to be much more straightforward. And part of it is... How much is a spoiler that I can and can't give away? Part of it, too, is... The Lion... The Lion children were all samurai. It's a little bit different when you're talking about kind of different career lines in the Mantis case. Hmm... I guess because I hadn't I, thought about. It. I guess there has. Go ahead. I mean, unless you, unless you count other than Daigatsu, I mean, has there ever been an actual Shugenja clan champion? I guess I hadn't really thought of it that way. Togashi. Well, okay. Well, I I know. I mean, there were multiple dragon clan champions who had yes. the Shugenja keyword on them. I yes. guess I had always taken that to be a stand-in for this person has supernatural magical powers rather than they're literally a Shugenja. Yes. Yes. But so. But, Keep going, sorry. I was sort of accepting them. I didn't mean Shugenja in a they have the keyword sort of sense, yes. but just an actual Shugenja, I guess. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way that that yeah, Shugenja are just not generally clan champions, if ever have been clan champions. And and it might not even be a prohibition so much as a calling. <laughs> you you can't really be a legitimate priest at the same time you have to run an entire clan. 
Well, you might be able to, but not every individual is interested in that, or or able, or feels that's a good. Or may, and some people would say, no, you can't. Right, and those people would be the ones being offered the choice. It, so those are all sorts of. And and by by going into that, I've pretty much given it away. But I don't think Sean would be would have a problem with that. It's, you see, what I'm saying that that here you have someone who probably can say with you know very simply, this is what I'm doing. Eh, right, that's it. <laughs> Whereas for the lion, it's going to take a little more exploration. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like I, I've said, it uh. It, it'll it'll probably turn out well for the lion because there was there's been references to how the the really conservative aggressive wing of the party doesn't like the new clan champion and I think those are the best clan champions that the lion end up with are the ones where the the really cranky lion don't really like them because they're they're too thoughtful and moderated and don't fly off the handle at the drop of a hat like well, Tatori right there was all sorts of Stuff about how lots of the lion didn't like Tatori and the younger brother and the studious, thoughtful guy instead of the arch warrior, and you know he yeah. sort of turned it, out well. It, it's funny in that I think the lion, as a, in general, get a little bit of disservice from the eyes of the players, and and maybe we are fueling that in that there is nothing wrong in the setting with being an ultra honorable, judgmental arch warrior. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Right, and more often than not, when you're like that, you're right. You're the good guy in most exchanges, like far and away. Not it's not even you're a good guy, but you're the, you are typically. And if people are disagreeing with the arch honorable samurai archetype, they're the ones who are in the wrong. Having said that, it's it's one of those things where, and we've hinted at this like earlier in this conversation, we're not dealing with players who are samurai. Yes. Something like that just came up in the the second Embers of War fiction, where the the Phoenix walk in and say, "Well, you know, there's all this messy stuff going on in the Ivory Kingdoms. We want to set up an Inquisitor Temple, and the Lion Delegate representative just flips out about how it's a total insult because, of course, since the Lion are the bulk of the Guardsmen, and they've now got Kitsu in place, that." It's an insult to suggest that anyone else could possibly need to deploy forces. Yeah. <laughs> and that one was interesting because if you go back to that exchange, the Phoenix doesn't really do anything that's all that offensive. No. The Atomo does. Yes. <laughs> Fancy that, an Atomo being offensive. Uh, yes, In such I, a way that someone else has to bear the brunt of it. Well, and, like, and I hear that at some point in time... Some some emperor did decide that one of the jobs of the Atomo was making the clans fight each other. Yes, and that was an example of maybe, without saying yay or nay, because I think this is an area where some legitimate uncertainty is good. Maybe that's what the Atomo was planning on, or maybe it's just how it panned out. You never know, right? Because on a lot of that kind of pseudo court manipulation, you don't know if it's because someone has been manipulated, or if it's just them acting like themselves. Yeah, well, and the, uh, the governor does seem to be working out into a, a, a wonderful, I guess I think of her as, a, from a GM's perspective, a plot hook machine, yeah. where you establish this character who just has random motivations and gets bored and wants to have different interesting things happen, and so... and, and is in a significant enough position where her random wins 
you know, can make sense. Law. Yeah, so so <laughs> you can actually do things that in other circumstances might be hard to make plausible. You can put them in through through the Atomo and be like, okay, and now you two guys will be forced into conflict with each other because of something I did that, you know, because I'm bored. <laughs> and, and I'm important, and you're not. So <laughs> you can either do what I say or lose. Your choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you the empress? No, yeah, then you're probably going to have to do what I say. Yeah. And, but I do think, going back to the more general point, that the lion tend to get short shrift from players, which is weird because they should be relatively iconic and easy to relate to if you're into the setting. Uh, and I think the Matsu really get short shrift. <laughs> like, like, a lot. Uh... Because they're, they are one of the two or three archetypes of the quintessential samurai. They're certainly not the only one. But, but there's a common notion that the Matsu are all hypocrites, or that they're not really honorable because they're so violent or that they're all frothing at the most berserkers. And I think that's a caricature, to some extent. Uh, there certainly are Matsu like that, and many prominent Matsu are very judgmental and very fiery. But I, I liken them more to like the main characters of far too many 80s movies, in that they are hot-headed, they have a very strong sense of right and wrong, and they're their feeling is, if something is wrong, you're supposed to go out and do something about it. You don't talk it out, you do something about it. Which, again, is not something that necessarily will relate to a modern audience, although most action movie heroes are the same way. Now, obviously, you wouldn't necessarily want to have Rambo as your diplomat, but... Well, I, I imagine where that breaks down a little bit is two things which I guess both relate to the quickness to use violence is that often is that you could have a couple of things happen one either the action hero is not enthusiastic mm -hmm. about using violence and and you could have that in the samurai too i mean instead of having someone like a matsu you could be have it more actively portrayed like well you know it's it's dumb that you're making me do this but now you've insulted my honor so i'm gonna have to kill you it's yes. they're much more enthusiastic about it than that yes and then the other thing is, uh, I imagine, a measure of proportionality. Yes, and that's, that's definitely more a player thing than a character thing. Because yes, yes. in character, the proportional response for you insulting my family is death. Yes, oh, oh no, yes. And that's, yeah. But we're talking about how the players relate players, absolutely. To, to the characters. And that's, I imagine, part of it. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're hot-headed action hero. You probably get the, you know, somebody runs their mouth and gets decked. Yes. They don't. I yep. run your mouth, and then my great-great-great-great-grandson slaughters your entire family. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that's an unfortunate... Well, not an unfortunate, but that's an aspect of just players and characters uh, diverging. Like, the Matsu family is fairly iconic, it's fairly well entrenched, and so changing that aspect of them would reduce what the Matsu are. Yeah. But at the same time, there are aspects where I think players are a little too eager to point out the bad sides and aren't willing enough to accept that, particularly within the setting, the Matsu have good reason for being the way they are, and not just okay reason. Yeah, well, you may be in an uphill yeah, battle no, with, with that. Well, it's, especially just in terms of once, once entren 
you know, once perceptions become entrenched, we can use Brian's favorite phrase, perception is reality. If, yep. if something is close to that archetype or caricature or, or whatever you want to call it, then people Absolutely. are going to see it yeah. in Absolutely. those terms. Absolutely. Since you mentioned the the Matsu, the, the Matsu, um, the the L five R setting in theory is you know as it was kind of originally out is was patriarchal because it's you know based yes. on a reality when it will you know very very loosely based on a reality which for you know Japan as well as every Western power in the the universe treated women rather badly and put men in charge and and so on and so forth. So you had that general thing, and then within that, you had several families who were very strictly matriarchal, the Matsu being one of them. And as, as L5R has progressed, I think the patriarchal aspect of it has gone away. I cannot really think of an occasion where it has mattered for, yes. for much I of think... anything that someone's... But we still have these very strictly matriarchal families in there, and it... At least to me, it feels kind of weird to have them in, and I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, and that is a little bit weird. I'm, I'm not sure if anything needs to be done, but I, I agree it does look odd. And the reason I say I'm not sure if anything needs to be done is there's an argument, and I think there's some validity to it, which says players will infer by default that if you don't say whether it's matriarchal or patriarchal, They'll assume it's patriarchal, and they'll treat it as such. And and mere silence in the case of that aspect of gender relations is de facto preference for one. And further, with the setting being a little bit less gender skewed overtly, now now having one family be you know matriarchal is more is more pure flavor than it used to be, whereas before it was combination of flavor and these guys are an exception to this norm in this way. I'm, I'm not sure... I, I agree it's, it's a change. I agree it's a, definitely the earlier material is much more strongly uh, gender-skewed. I'm not sure we necessarily need to change the way it is now any further. I'm just... I, like, I, I agree there's, some, there's been a change there. I, I'm just not sure if a further tweaking is necessary, particularly when, you know, there are players who are really on board certain families being matriarchal. It, yeah, it, I, it, it's one of those things that it sort of it seems odd to me. On the other hand, I have a hard time thinking of a, of a non-awkward way to, yeah. to suddenly be like, oh, and now the utaku don't treat men like second-class citizens anymore. Yeah. So you, you've got a point, though, that it, it's, a, it's a shift, and that shift has implications for how certain families operate and relate to each other. Yeah, and I guess a follow-on that, to that, in that I, I think I mentioned something about it in one of my little ten things I think I think uh, <laughs> articles. Sure. Is that one of our, of our, the readers then said, oh, and just generally... You know, you notice how nobody's gay in L5R. So, have you, as a story team, ever talked about? I can sort of see like why that, from a business perspective, would be a problematic thing to put in 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. You're creating the game, but that doesn't seem like it would be 
if it would be an issue now, it would right. be much of one. So, I mean, has you has there ever been any discussion about whether or not the fiction will depict, I mean, just a gay character or any other? I've I've certainly thought about it. Uh, I've certainly had a few discussions with people about it in a very preliminary kind of. Do you think it would be a good idea to explore this? Yes or no? And my own take on it has been: it's very easy to do terribly wrong. Two, we don't have very many overt portrayals of sexuality in the stories anyways. Like, we have no. we have characters who obviously have feelings for one another, obviously. But it doesn't come up that often, period. Is the risk of offending either, like, either A, someone who's prejudiced, or B, someone who actually is homosexual quite high if we do it wrong? Yes. So I'm not sure. <laughs> I, 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 and, and there is an argument to be said that you know people don't read L5R in general for examinations of sexuality in general. So yes, I've been asked about this before. Uh, yes, I've thought about it. I'm not sure what the answer should be. I, I, I think I've just outlined some of the thoughts I've had. And... Yeah, I can certainly see what you're saying, that it, it could be easy to do badly, and I certainly agree that, yeah, L5R is not, there's some, you know, every once in a while there's a romance plotline, and, 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 you know, people who listen to the podcast know that I'm all big on Nalish and Shakay, but, but yeah. still, that's an uncommon sort of thing to have come up, which is actually one of the reasons why I'm big on it, because, hey, yeah. look, it's a really high-profile, unusual thing for L5R, but, it, yeah. yeah, it would, if you sat down and said, okay, let's have a big gay romance plot line, that would, it would be unusual just for being a big romance plot line. Yes. Never mind the, and, yeah, and, and I imagine there'd be a lot of risk with that of having it feel well, like, you know, like the whole purpose of this was to be like, yes, and there are, in fact, duh, there are gay people in Rokugan too. Seems like it would have to be sort of a more subtle thing, and then, of course, half of us wouldn't notice it. And I'm not, I'm not averse to doing it in, in concept, but I need a reason. Anything that I'm, we're thinking about including, we need a reason to include in general. Now, sometimes we make a bad call and, and you know, decide to spend time on a plot that isn't worthwhile. Or, and that's normally on my shoulders. Or you know, something sounds like it'll be really interesting and neat, and it's not. But any detail that's included and mentioned... Players will assume, and not without good reason, that there's a reason why we bothered putting it in. So, if we make something primarily about homosexual, like, it, with a homosexual aspect to it, I think a certain number of players will read it as being, well, they wanted to include a story about homosexuality. And that comes with a lot of risk. Right? And it takes up a lot of narrative bandwidth. Okay, well... I'm not really sure how long so far, but we have spent quite a long time now with me asking mostly sure. mean questions because that's the sort of questions that get asked. It's hard to ask yep. questions like, uh, wow, so wasn't that great thing in that story great, just like most of the other stuff in your stories <laughs> are great. But let me play the the nice interviewer for a second. and. Sure. I mean, is there anything that you want p 
people to to know about the story either because you know AEG as a brand wants to emphasize something about the story or because you as a guy on the story team there's something that you want to to play mm-hmm. up that you guys have been doing that you think maybe people have have overlooked or I I, I give you the the platform sir sure actually there is one thing that's been on my mind and that's as a shout out to the fans if well not a shout out but a request if you really like something that's been done or how it's been done tell the author like seriously because they have feelings they're people they work hard and feedback particularly positive feedback is hard to get constructive negative feedback is also hard to get too <laughs> if there is a stylistic choice you agree with or disagree with make a comment like seriously otherwise it's very difficult without that kind of feedback for someone to figure out what's working or not because without that feedback it's purely self-impression and self-assessment which is dangerous to rely on because you eventually end up you're too much in your own head and you don't have an outside voice so do give feedback even if there's no explicit comment I know from talking with the team that they read the comments I read the comments and even if we don't necessarily reply in thread they're heard, they're listened to and they're considered and it's useful and when it is nice, it's appreciated. Which, you know, <laughs> sometimes it can feel like a thankless job. So anything that helps make it less so makes it more pleasant for the team. If you're at Gen Con, say hi to us. Um, and those, that, that immediately comes to mind, though. That, that really feedback, both positive and negative, is a good thing. And that's not the same thing as saying, you should do it this way. But I certainly think the team does appreciate it when someone can tell them clearly and unequivocally, here's where I really enjoyed it, something you did, and why. See, what else? Speaking very minorly about a side point, someone once recently asked if the, if the card Unicorn Marketeer was my vanity card, and the answer is no. I named my online handle after the card, not the other way around. Uh, what else? Those are the things that immediately come to mind. Yes. And in yeah. case anybody is curious, I totally picked my handle after that card that's named that. Oh, wait. <laughs> God. Um, yeah, yeah I, I feel... I, I actually feel bad about. It. I mean, the first the first thing you mentioned. I know that we, being strange assembly, and I guess me in particular, since I take up most of the the bandwidth on that, is that yeah, we 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 end up talking about the story when there's something that was all that we feel was off, sure. And we we don't end up. And I hope that when we say negative things, at least some of it's constructive. But it is. Yeah, I, I it's it's hard for us to work in. Like, how do you say like, oh, we read this. We read that charms fiction, and wow, they, yeah, those those couple of small things are are interesting. I wonder what happens yep. with that character. And and you like you say that, and you're like, yeah, okay, sure, right. And then yeah, it's yep. it, it ends it up being hard. harder to talk about. And I and I wish I could think of a better way to to, to work that in. So, yeah, so we're not just so right. so the only thing to talk about isn't when the the fiction does come up that we're like, oh, what the heck, what happened there? No, that wasn't good. One person once pointed out to me that news stations that focus on telling good news get bad rating. Yes. Well, is it, I mean, what's the point? No news is good news? I. 
like literally that that there have been attempts at news stations that focus on positive stories. They didn't do very well. People are drawn to the bad stories. And and it's hard on an internet form in particular to, to consistently give good feedback and say, this was great, blah, 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 and not have someone else say you're a fanboy or a tool or some other pejorative. I yes. understand that. I'm just saying, when you can, you know, tell people that their work is appreciated. Right? In fact, my, my, my standing request is, if you have something bad to say, bring it to me, and if you have something good to say, bring it to the person who was responsible for it. Because, you know, the team works really hard. They really do. And they care about their craft and about the universe. And it's nice to them to have people recognize that. <laughs> so it's, it's a, like, and, and I you know, can't emphasize that enough that uh, it's important to me as a nominal person who has to keep everything straight to have people who are happy to work and it helps to you know it's easier to be happy to work when people are saying good job um what else yeah that was that's the only thing that really immediately comes to mind i'm sure are you going to be at gen con this year yes i'm sure if anything comes up in the interim or there's some burning question that everyone says you should have asked but you didn't there'll be a chance there if you want to Yes, yes. Uh, you, you may not know it yet, but you're, unless you object, you're going to get shanghai on Thursday to do at Gen Con. Oh, I should work. Interview. That's, our, that's our interview day. I okay. believe we're going to end up with a story team interview and a design team interview, and then I'll try to, then we'll try to see if there's other stuff, I mean, either with, with AEG people or, or right. possibly other things for that, because once once I kind of set aside stuff for that day. I mean, le- last year That's I tried first. to last year I tried to cram some RPG sessions around the interviews, yeah, and it was it okay work. in the morning, and it didn't work in the evening, and so we're, I'm just going to take that that Thursday and do that. So you will uh, surely sure. get get Shanghai for sure. that. <laughs> I enjoy it, and and really like I I make a point, for example, of wandering around the clan dinners. Uh, usually they're on Thursday, I think, but you know, any of them that are late as well, just to say hi to people and, you know, sound them out for what they want to hear and what they like and what they don't. I, I, I like L5R. I like the fans. I like working with people. And yeah. Well, you know, if you're not tied down yet on Thursday, mm-hmm. there's a big AEG event on the three nights of junk on there, not counting Sunday. Right. On Saturday night, it's the CCG thing. On Friday night, it's all the other non-L5R board game stuff. And on Thursday night, it's the RPG thing. So there's a big RPG thing that's scheduled when the clan dinners would normally be. And so I'm going to end up at the RPG thing, I think. At least I'll feel silly if I don't because I already paid for my ticket. So if you don't have plans yet for Thursday night, you you want to run the Dragon Clan dinner for me? Because I've been doing that for the last couple of years, and I don't think I can do it if I'm not there. <laughs> um, let's see, last year I made my cameo at the Dragon Dinner, so I'm trying to make sure that all the clans, like, that I get to every clan dinner. <laughs> and I don't think I have, like, I'm missing half the clans. It's only my third. I've only gone to three. I think that'll, this will be my fourth, I think. And there's so many clans left to attend. <laughs> oh, I'll just have to find uh, someone else. Yes, plus I'd rather someone else do the actual hard heavy lifting. Um, <laughs> yes, it is 
it almost oh, I know. Lights, it is easier to show up than uh getting getting reservations for anywhere around Gen Con is work. I know this. Even though I've never had to actually make those reservations, I know this. It's that bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I think I have probably taken up enough of your time, so okay. let's go ahead and wrap it up. We have been talking with Fred Wan, the continuity editor for the story team at Legend of the Five Rings. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Fred. My pleasure. And I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Talk to you later. You've been listening to Strange Assembly. You can download more episodes of Strange Assembly on iTunes or from our website at www.strangeassembly.com. While you're at our website, you can check out the frequently updated main page or talk with us on the forums. You can also email me directly at chris at strangeassembly.com or you can follow Strange Assembly on Facebook or Twitter. Strange Assembly either place. Thanks for listening.